because I have a lot to say, uh, let me just quickly begin. I want to uh, begin to speak to you tonight about the subject of homosexuality. Uh, and the reason why I want to speak about that subject is that uh, I knew you would come to hear. Uh, so let me be honest about that. And I knew you would come to hear because I'm absolutely persuaded uh, you're very interested in the subject. And here is why uh, you are interested in the subject. Here in our midst, uh, some of you I know have homosexual friends or relatives. Uh, some of you here, I know, are even as we speak, struggling with homosexual, with same gender attraction. Uh, some here uh, wonder, really, what's even fundamentally wrong with same gender partnerships. And I also know that there are some here who not only have strong feelings about the homosexual lifestyle, but they are also, if we're to be honest, repulsed by homosexuals. So you could see uh, just about everybody here has an interest and an investment in the subject, and that's why, Lord willing, uh, tonight and the next two Wednesday nights, I want to address the subject. Now, if I were to ask you a question, I don't want you to answer out loud, maybe to yourself. If I were to ask you, is homosexuality morally right or wrong, though I do not know what your answer is, I know how you arrived at your answer. Here's how you did it. You considered a source of information which to you has most authority with regard to all moral issues. You answered the question about the rightness or wrongness about same-gender physical partnerships on the basis of what you lift up above it all as the final word. And so everybody here is considering certain bases of authority upon which they come to conclusions about what's morally right and what's morally wrong. And so, for instance, here are some of the options. Uh, you perhaps are considering contemporary culture. Maybe to you it ought to rule what the attitude of the day is, what most people think, or perhaps... You are considering human history. You're just looking to this particular lifestyle and how it has evolved and unfolded and manifested itself, really, in every age. And uh, perhaps that is determinative for you. Or you can consider your own thinking. Maybe that's what you make recourse to as the final source of authority. Your rational being. What appeals to your mentality. What seems to be morally right or wrong to you. Or maybe you're considering your own life experience. 
Maybe you're considering relationships that you have had, some which were pleasant, some which were painful. And maybe on the basis, therefore, of your own subjective experience, uh, you are making a decision about morality. That's understandable. Or maybe you are deferring, maybe you are considering the opinions of others. Look, maybe you're just that kind of person. You don't know what you think until it is clarified in interaction with others. Maybe you're someone who takes polls, and maybe the majority view is one which you choose to embrace. Or maybe you consider the Bible. Now, folks, I think all of these things, all of the above, ought to be taken into account. But let me just state for you at the beginning of our series what my presupposition is. Though all of these things, I believe, ought to be taken into account in areas of conflict, I believe we are to look to the Bible as the highest authority. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not stating that because I happen to be a church person. Not at all. I think there is abundant corroborating evidence that has persuaded me that which is contained in the covers of the 66 books of the Bible is in fact God's roadmap given to us as a gift graciously given to us so that we could know how to live. Now, that's a subject for another day, the reliability and veracity of the Scriptures. But I think I have it on a good evidentiary basis that the Bible ought to rule when it comes to matters of morality. And so, folks, I want to be honest with you so you know where I'm coming from right at the outset. What I think about the Bible directly affects what I think about homosexuality. But I'm not alone in that. That's true of everyone who weighs in on the issue. You see, one's conclusion about homosexuality is indeed directly connected to one's conclusion about the Bible. So I staked out my ground. My conclusion is that the Bible is without error God's word, given to us so that we could know how to live. And because uh, that is what I consider to be the highest authority for tonight, I want to take some of your time and ask you to examine a very key passage of Scripture with me. In subsequent weeks, if we are permitted, we'll examine some of the root causes of homosexual behavior. And then, what is the loving responsibility of the church uh, towards those who are struggling in the area of same-gender attraction. For tonight, however, I want us to take a gander at a passage of Scripture which to me is the clearest and most unambiguous declaration of what God intends in the area of human sexuality. And so we want to look at just a few verses in Genesis chapter 2, Beginning in verse 18, it says, Then 
The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The first word's important. Then. It's a time indicator. It implies something has preceded this statement. Something happened then. Well, what preceded the then? Folks, God provided the Garden of Eden, paradise on earth. God provided provision for first man, everything he needed to thrive and to survive. God evaluated all that he had created and he, he almost like an artist stood back from the creation order and it's as if he evaluated it and came to the conclusion, oh, it's, it's not just good. It is good to the max. I'm kind of putting words in God's mouth. I'm not sure he speaks that way. But he did say it is very good. And so after all of this, the text says, then God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Can you imagine that first man had absolutely everything but a suitable life partner? And that meant the garden, even with all of its pleasures and provisions, was not sufficient until its delights could be shared with a suitable life partner. And so it was God, you notice, who took the initiative in recognizing and in meeting the need. He said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Do you notice it does not say, I will make him a helper like him. The text says, I'll make him a helper suitable for him. The word in the original language means someone who would correspond as a compliment, as two uniquely configured, oh, you might say, puzzle pieces who though they can be easily differentiated from one another, fit together in a corresponding, perfectly suitable, complementary way. Folks, make no mistake about it, the perfect life partner is not somebody like you. Perhaps you've discovered this. Somebody like you makes a good friend, but somebody like you does not make a good life partner. It is somebody who compliments you who makes a perfect life partner. And so the physical design between males and females, don't you see, is by nature complementary. But this is simply not true of same-gender relationships. In fact, same-gender partners are, can you argue with this, anatomically not suitable, corresponding, complementary life partners. And so with regard to first man Adam, there was life, as you know, all around him, but The text says, nonetheless, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so the text goes on in uh, verse 21 to say, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, as as are some of you. And and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. 
He's needy. He's not complete. Even with life all around him, God sees it and renders him absolutely uninvolved in the process of meeting his legitimate physical and relational need. Don't you see it? It's a legitimate, God-given, relational, physical, sexual need. But when one tries to meet it outside the will of God, it can only be met illegitimately. God has to take the initiative in meeting our God-given physical, relational needs. So then he slept. And today when anyone takes the initiative in satisfying their own legitimate, physical, sexual, relational needs outside the will of God, whether it be in a same-gender relationship or in an adulterous, heterosexual relationship, it's still an attempt by us to take care of ourselves, and it doesn't work. Better to sleep and say, Oh, God, you meet my needs your way. So that's what God did. Now, folks, he created, notice, two very different people referred to as a man and a woman. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. God created two very different people. And don't you see, if God had created two people of the same gender at this point, then God's very mandate to humankind could not have been fulfilled. Did you know he gave a mandate to humankind? And here it is, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 God created man, notice, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, this is God's divine mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over Every living thing that moves on the earth, that was God's mandate to people to be fruitful and multiply. Do you realize God's mandate could not have been fulfilled unless he created at this point two heterosexual people, namely a male and a female. But those who are supportive of the homosexual agenda would say this. They would say, not all heterosexual marriages produce children. So if God's mandate is to procreate and produce children so as to fill the earth, then a marriage, a heterosexual marriage, unable to produce children, must be invalidated by God. And how can a guy like me say that homosexuality is not morally acceptable to God because it doesn't consist of two complementary partners 
when in fact there are certain heterosexual marriages that can't produce children to the same extent that homosexual relationships can't. So how could you say heterosexual marriages are valid if they don't produce children, but homosexual marriages are not valid because they can't produce children? Folks, it's pretty simple. God never legislated against heterosexual partnerships, but I'll show you, it's pretty clear. He really did legislate against same-gender marital partners. And also, the pro-homosexual agenda, those who would invalidate a heterosexual relationship that cannot produce children are missing something. The thinking is really darkened and wrong. Though it is obvious that procreation and production of life can only come from heterosexual relations, uh, still a married heterosexual couple who are not able to have children do not have their marriage invalidated by God. And here's the reason why. Because the purpose of God-ordained heterosexual marriage is not just to produce children. You see, it is to fulfill God's mandate to assist each other in the course of living life so as to bring into the relationship sufficient gender differentiation so as to complement each other and thus enable each other to do life together as God ordained it. Well, the text continues in verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't think Adam knew what to make of this. I think the good old boy was excited for sure, but I don't, I think this took him by surprise. I don't even think he knew what to call this marvelous creature. In fact, he started out calling her this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of... (laughs) But then, as slow-learning men are prone to do, uh, he figured out uh, she wasn't too thrilled with that, and so he came up with a better name. He said, she shall be called woman. Kind of like, whoa, man. <laughs> and she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. I got to tell you something. In Hebrew, uh, uh, the word used here for man is ish. Ish. I-S-H. And the word used here for woman, listen, is isha. Ish and isha. Interestingly, the root meaning of ish is the piercer, and the root meaning of isha is the pierced. Can you see the complementarity of the relationship? And this marvelous play on words, ish and isha, indicates that they're actually both the same. That is to say, they're people, they're not animals, and yet they're different. One is an ish and the other is an Isha. And then it says in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. For this reason, which leads to the question, for what reason? 
for the cause of lifelong, committed, suitable, corresponding, complementary companionship. For this reason, a man shall be joined to his wife in such a fashion and in a way which we fully cannot comprehend that the two different yet corresponding humans shall become one flesh. Folks, the standard established by God from the beginning is monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Nowhere in the Bible has God authorized any other kind of marriage. And nowhere in the Bible has God authorized any other outlet for sexual inclinations. I know today homosexuality is uh, likened to modern-day leprosy. And I know we've elevated the behavior to the level of the unpardonable sin. And I know it's much more acceptable in our way of thinking for healthy, red-blooded American men to engage in extramarital affairs. But I'm telling you from God's point of view, any human attempt to satisfy legitimate sexual desires outside the will of God, whether it be through heterosexual adultery or same-gender relationships, is sin. It is transgression. And God doesn't differentiate between the two. So, folks, this means, this fundamental model of human sexuality means that homosexual partnerships are prohibited. And they are prohibited because they are incompatible with God's clearly stated standard regarding marriage and which he established as part of the creation order. Now, according to this passage before us, the one we've just reviewed, to call a union of two persons of the same gender a marriage is a misnomer. You see, we're told in the foundational passage we just looked at that marriage is a divinely ordered institution designed to form a complementary and permanent union between one man and one woman. But those of the pro-gay lobby declare, however, that this arrangement was simply relevant in existence and true at the beginning of things, but that it no longer need be the model today. Folks, that is simply not true. The prohibition against any other kind of sexual or marital partnership, including, as I say, heterosexual infidelity and homosexual partnership, continues throughout the Bible. Listen, Leviticus 18.22 you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. 
And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. No, folks, the male-female marital partnership is the only model of sexual behavior which is consistently praised in both the Old and New Testaments. Not once in the Bible is a homosexual relationship mentioned in anything but negative terms. To say, as I've just been told by a well-known television personality, that homosexuality is a gift from God simply flies in the face of the word of God. Now, I know the government may legalize homosexual marriage, and I know that certain clergy persons might bless homosexual unions, but God forbids it and does not bless it. And that is true from the beginning of time, now and forevermore. But though homosexual behavior is declared immoral by God's word, advocates of homosexual behavior are promoting it. This is how they're doing it. Not as a moral issue, but as a civil rights issue. (laughs) Uh, Just like black people who have fought the good fight for civil rights, or even women who have fought the good fight for civil rights. And so um, this whole homosexual issue issue is being put in the same category. I must tell you, if I was a black person or a woman, I'd be grotesquely and grossly insulted at the insinuation that the two are the same. Folks, I have to tell you something. Homosexuality is not a civil rights issue. It is a moral issue. Now, though basic civil rights uh, have been from time to time, denied gay people and should not be. I tell you, the goal of the gay rights movement goes far beyond merely securing basic human rights. Uh, Leaders of the gay rights movement issued, for instance, this statement recently. Listen, uh, a direct quote. We demand, we demand inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender studies in multicultural curricula. You can kiss reading, writing, and arithmetic goodbye. The quotation goes on to say, we demand full and equal inclusion of lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgendered people in the educational system. We demand, we demand that the definition of family include the full diversity of all family structures. This demand goes way beyond uh, uh, the legitimate request for basic human rights. Can you see that the the demands of the gay rights movement does in fact go way beyond merely securing basic human rights. The pro-gay movement is not demanding mere toleration. It is demanding public legitimization of homosexuality. That is a huge difference than merely asking 
uh, as is legitimate for basic human rights. But I have to tell you, God in his word makes it pretty clear that homosexual behavior is not the moral equivalent of heterosexuality. In fact, he condemns it and he tells us not to engage in it. Now, I beg you, do not be hateful towards those engaged in homosexual partnerships. In fact, be saddened and moved to pray for them. Why? Because the real victims of the homosexual agenda are homosexual people themselves. The homosexual community some years ago, actually a number of decades ago, uh, chose the word gay to represent uh, their community rather than the word uh, homosexual. And the reason for the substitute word is that uh, it was thought the word gay carried with it fewer negative connotations uh, than the word homosexual. But I have to tell you, the gay lifestyle is really not gay at all. Don't you see all sinful behavior, including homosexual behavior, is self-destructive? And therefore, it is only a loving God who commands us against it. But what if two same-gender people declare their love for each other? Doesn't that legitimize the relationship? No, it does not. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that homosexual relationships are legitimized if they occur between two consenting adults, if they seem natural, and if they also seem to be loving. Folks, can you show me in the Bible where it says, for instance, thou shalt not commit adultery unless, of course... You and the person you are committing adultery with happen to love one another. It doesn't say that. So you see, God's standards are absolute. There are, in fact, no exceptions to what he has told us about how we are to live. Now, let me issue a warning, which I need and you need, I think. Do you realize today... A higher virtue than biblical correctness is to be tolerant. And so niceness and toleration of just about everything is the mantra in our culture and sadly even in many of our churches. But though toleration is a good thing, wouldn't you rather have truth? Uh, the Bible doesn't say a tolerant attitude will set you free. It says you'll know the truth. And it's the truth that will set you free. I don't think we should be mean-spirited. No, I think we should be humble and gracious and merciful. And living proof of a loving God to all those who struggle with coping mechanisms outside the will of God. 
I don't think we ought to be afraid of getting close to those who are struggling, in this case with same-gender attraction, as if we'll be defiled by being in close contact. No, I think we ought to be the healthy family so many struggling people are looking for. And yet, on the other hand, though the individual ought to be embraced with love, just as each here has been by the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot tolerate what God declares to be unacceptable. We're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to compromise with God's timeless and absolute standards of truth. His truth is not subject to vacillating culture and time and society. Once the American Psychiatric Association declared in its literature the homosexual lifestyle to be a form of pathology and now the same body, the American Psychiatric Institution in its same book declares it to be simply an alternative lifestyle and I want to know what happened. Did truth change? No, it's become what we could call sociological truth. As the society goes, so too goes truth. No, no. As the one who is the truth declares to us his truth, that truth endures, predominates, and applies to every person in every day. Folks, it's the truth that has set you and I, most of us, free. We cannot give in to the attitude of the day to tolerate all manner of things that God says are intolerable. So we are to speak the truth, but not to the extent that we disrespect demean and degrade any other human being created in the image of God. No, we are to speak the truth but in love to all people, including those struggling with same-gender attraction. And how does same-gender attraction, how does it develop anyway? What causes it Are you subject to it? Am I? Well, Lord willing, that's what we'll talk about next time we get together. How does it happen? What are the contributing causes? If you're a parent of a gay child, are you to blame? I hope you come next week. We will not hurt you. I think we'll help you. I want to share something with you as we close. I was thinking back as I was preparing for tonight about a time when I was a teenager in New York and I grew up in a low-income housing development. You've seen them on TV. There's these, they're apartment complexes. They just, they basically look like cells and and you just live in in them and there's, there's no grass or anything. It's just, it's concrete and you, there's not much to do except hang out. So that's what you do, you hang out. So every single night, me and the other kids, guys, gals, who lived in this mess of an environment would hang out in kind of a playground nearby. We would just hang out. 
7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9, 10, 11, 12. We could hang out all night. What a cool thing. No boundaries, no rules. You want to hang out? We can just hang out all night. Why? Because one of the things we had in common is that almost none of us had a dad who cared. If we had a dad, he was an absentee dad. He was there but not there. He might have been caught up in his gambling or he might have been caught up in his alcoholism or maybe there wasn't a dad at all. And so for a while we tried to persuade ourselves, look how cool this is. There are some other kids we know in school, they sort of have to be home at a certain time. they got to ask their dad permission to do something. Well, not us. We could do anything we want. We don't have a dad. Isn't this cool? No. It's sad. Every one of my friends, including me, is insecure down to this very day. It's hard to believe that anybody cares. Oh, for a dad who cared enough how we lived that he would say, this is right, that's wrong. These are the bounds by which you may live. I tell you this because I care how you live and I want you to live large. Ah, oh, I wish I had a dad like that. I do now. I have an Abba father who so cares about how I live. He commands me against misbehavior. He tells me how to relate. He tells me how to handle my finances. He tells me how to handle my body. He tells me about healthy sexuality. He tells me these are the bounds by which you should live. He tells me I'm not doing this to cramp your style. I'm doing it because I love you and I care how you live. So what are you struggling with? Is it an extramarital relationship? It is, is, it, is it a same gender partnership? It is, is it uh, inappropriate sexual involvement in which you try to satisfy your own needs? I don't know. God's roadmap in the Bible is not to cramp anybody's style, to put anybody down, to reject anyone. It's to say... If you would only let me adopt you, I can be the dad you never had. Everyone here is searching for the perfect father they never had. There is one. He happens to be transcendent deity, but he came near in the form of Emmanuel. And as we think about gender and sexual things, every one of us is invited to assume the feminine role to be the bride of Christ. Let him provide and protect and guide and lead and say, that's good, that's bad. It is freedom to be under the umbrella of a heavenly father who cares how we live. It is bondage. To try to satisfy your own needs, homosexually or heterosexually, outside the will of God, I beseech you. The issue has nothing to do with the specifics of sexuality. The issue it has to do with, whose are you? Who's calling the shots? Who's leading you? Who's caring for you? Who died for you? As a demonstration of the fact that he wants a relationship with you.
Who wants to adopt you into his family? Who wants to be the dad you maybe never had? Who wants to reparent you? Who wants to observe your lifestyle with a loving eye upon you? Who doesn't want you to be alone? Who doesn't want you to live a gay lifestyle, but instead wants to fill you with joy, everlasting by being smack dab in the center of his will? Who wants to embrace you? Who wants to hug you? Who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you? It's a relationship you crave, and it's legitimate but you've tried to meet the need your own way. You're not gay at all. You're depressed. The possibility of you committing suicide is far greater. The incident of addictions, drug and otherwise, is far greater in the homosexual community. You're not gay. You're not free. You're putting a public smile on your face, but you're torn up on the inside because you can't, not you, not me. We can't live in the world created by God as if he doesn't exist. There's nothing gay about it. It's terrible. It's lonely. It's depressing. It's discouraging. It's a dead end street. But Jesus said, come to me. You want a relationship? Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I won't give you a sermon. I won't give you a lecture. I won't give you a rebuke. I won't punish you. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Say, you have a burden, but mine is light. Take my yoke upon you and I'll be able to carry your burden. You're looking for a partner through life here and there. Let me be your partner. Jesus is the God-man for all people, for those struggling with same-gender attraction, for those involved in illicit, heterosexual, extramarital relationships. Jesus is the God-man for all people craving a healthy and wholesome relationship that will never come to an end. And Jesus said, come to me and I'll give it to you. Lord Jesus. Thank you for being interested in how we live. It's horrible to be independent. We've tried it. It's horrible to be autonomous. We've tried it. It's horrible to do our own thing. It isn't good. If it feels good, do it. No, because after it feels good, it doesn't feel so good. Oh, God, it's better to be under your yoke. Because Father knows best. So I pray if there be any here tonight who have not yet accepted you as Father through Big Brother, the Lord Jesus. I pray that would be the case here tonight. And so I pray each of us, Lord Jesus, would begin to taste in a fresher way than ever before what it is to be in relationship with the God who loves us most. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.